versions of the Rent Ghost theme lyrics in the Rent Ghost annual included the guarantee that they answer any calls, roller skate through walls, and wander headless down your halls. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, with a slightly spooky twist that no one else ever seems to, is novelist Will McLean. Will, what your tour? Where can we find it? I am currently. I've been very busy this year. I have not only had a series out on Audible, which you can now listen to. It's been released, which is called High Strangeness, which is a comedy drama about the paranormal. I have also written a book. I've written an, when you said novelist, there it's quite a thrill because that's <laughs> uh, that's technically correct now. The book is called The Apparition Phase. It's a ghost story set in the early seventies. So as such, it's got a lot of touchstones from that era of what we now refer to as popular hauntology which I really probably don't need to introduce to anyone who listens to this show. It's a proper ghost story, hopefully. Hopefully people will, will be thrilled by it, and that's out now. Well, having heard a little about it beforehand, I'm really looking forward to it, and there is plenty of popular hauntology coming up in this, but your first choice, I wouldn't describe it as that because I don't know how to describe it. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the advert for this, so here's the advert for something closely related, which isn't spooky at all, and we'll find out what we're talking about in a minute. McCowan's Highland Toffee. It's delicious. Ask someone who chews all day. Okay, that was that bit from McCowan's Highland Toffee Chew, <laughs> which you might be thinking, what on earth is this doing in a spookily themed show? But Will, Zegazoid bars, what were they? They were uh, chewy bars, which we'll come back to in a second because that's really underselling what they were. They were lime and licorice flavour, so they were black one side and green the other. And the conceit of Zegazoid chew bars was that they were from outer space. And they left your mouth black when you ate them. So it's pretty much everything you'd want from a bar as a child. And they were banned in my school. Two kids lost teeth. Whoever made them. And it was probably McCowan's. It was it? McCowan's, yeah, because there's kind of expanded universe thing going on. <laughs> the one bar which is set in space. So was Zegazoid the rival of that kind I of don't know. knock-off Star Wars shuttle? I don't know. It belongs to that whole tier of confectionery and similar things. Tuck shop things that are from space purportedly from space. I remember it being quite pleasant tasting, but the stickiness of it was, I don't know what chemically was going on there, but it was really overdone. So two kids in my class lost teeth, like literally lost, had teeth pulled out of their head by them. So um, honestly, because they were so adhesive, or like, well, I don't know what even the quality as you'd call it. They were so um, uh, relentless is the one I'm going to use. And this sounds like a load of nonsense, but I did see one kid. I forever have to live with the image of a, I think it was a baby tooth anyway, but someone's tooth embedded in a Zegazoid chew bar that was stretched to sort of, you know, two foot long as they tried to pull it out of their mouth. So yeah, this is a good intro to a lot of scary things because it's a real life nightmare, basically, that I lived through and you know still living through now well i'm not surprised to hear that because my main memory of one bars is that you try to take the wrapper off them and there would be a kind of diamond shaped sliver would stay on and yes. refuse to be removed from it you would have to eat it with that still attached and spit it out at the appropriate time i remember that so well that if you if you then stretch the bar with the diamond shaped bit on it the diamond shaped bit would assume a sort of alligator skin pattern as it stretched but it was impossible to remove and it was a common thread to all the mccowan's bars because obviously there was that and wham there's also the highland toffee bar and the iron brew bar but right. they all had that kind of weirdly unbeatable consistency to them and McCowan's themselves just seem a bit kind of weird because that's all they made <laughs> and yet they were this big firm for a long time and mm. 
I think they were more legendary in Scotland where they were based than they were anywhere else. Yes. I've never met anyone who's, who remembers Zegazoid 2. I just remember that you could probably lag a pipe with one. They were so... There was so something... It's not adhesive. What, I don't even know what the term is we're looking for. They were just tough. They were like sort of... I don't know. There was, there was something really hefty about them and, and unforgiving. Well, according to the Great British Tuck Shop by former guests Phil Norman and Steve Berry, the working title for it was The Gangrene Bar, which I half am that can't be real about but half thinking about the consistency and the colour of it I can see that and also it tap into the whole kind of early 80s it's a bit like extra in bar form <laughs> you know that kind of post-alien sci-fi horror being marketed to kids it would kind of yes. fit in with that I do remember it being that striking green and black colour that nothing in nature was it was such an odd taste of it as well I did look it up online and there's very little mention of it there's a lot of people misremembering it somebody misremembered it as having sort of sherbet crystals in it which is nonsense it's absolute nonsense <laughs> yeah gangrene would fit it i think as a name because it's <laughs> it looked unwell i've never seen it outside of i think 1983 <laughs> it was around and then it wasn't it blessed us with its tooth removing presence well i wonder if that was an epidemic sort of the dental disaster associated with it because like you say it came and went very quickly and it didn't even feature in my main memory of mccowan's ever is when lee and herring were Radio 1 and they had the poll for the nation's favourite chew bar and the mm. one bar came bottom and Rich phoned <laughs> McCowans and spoke to a really incredulous man who was really angry who said I don't see what people don't like it's natural colours to which he replied that's not natural pink or green it's from space <laughs> the thing was Segazoid actually literally was from space I mean maybe they discovered it and mined it on an alien planet that's the only explanation I can think of it would have been an excellent way for aliens to obtain tissue samples from human beings because it took you it literally took your teeth out two kids in my class it was a class of 30 kids that's you know one in 15 chance of losing a tooth that's pretty good how did they enforce the ban oh uh, you know like all it was a ban and it wasn't a ban <laughs> it was just, like all these things again i'd rather we didn't eat these and then everyone did and then they just you know everyone got bored and started doing heroin or whatever whatever was next and that was it that was uh that was the summer of zegazoid they've vanished from popular culture nobody remembers them whereas wham bars are like you know everyone's got a they're, they're, yeah, everyone has a reaction to them but no one remembers zegazoid and probably you know, quite rightly if anyone does remember zegazoid i mean don't get in contact or anything because i don't really care but it would be nice if someone else did well yeah i mean it's true to say there's very little out there about it but there's almost to my surprise as little about your second choice which is i mean you mentioned boredom that was my most powerful reaction for this it sounds like yours is going to be quite different but here's a song from it that i genuinely have not heard since i watched the first five minutes of the first episode and thought i hate this program and never watched it again <laughs> and i can remember every word of this song and how it went so let's hear a bit of it you might recognize the voice so they survey all on a day she dressed herself in man's array with a loaded pistol down by her side to rob her true love to rob her true love away did ride as she was riding over the plain she met her true love and bid him stand stand and she said or else this moment or else this moment i'll shoot you dead and when she robbed him okay that was so the female highwayman sung by either saint Clair, will 
What is this and what spooked you about it? This is The Song and the Story, which is a show that was on the BBC Children's Strand. And it was presented by Isla Sinclair, who's best known, of course, being on The Generation Game from 1978 onwards with Larry Grayson. And then all of a sudden she decided to get into folk horror and bring us this, which was a show about folk songs in which Isla would perform the folk songs and then she would explain the meaning behind them. And you hated it. <laughs> well, I did, because I remember it was very, very heavily hyped ahead of broadcast. And Anna St. Clair was apparently quite hardcore traditional folky from the moment she started her career. Somehow she wound up on the Generation game. You know, on that, she was all lively and bubbly. And there was, do you remember End of Part 1, the ITV children's sketch show that sent up other TV shows? Ooh, I do now you mention it, yes. When they did, quote, Larry Grayson's Fat Lady's Embarrassment Game, she just spoke over him for that whole sketch i was credited as presented by scotland's answer to london zoo's parrot house and so that's how you thought about the st Clair. and you know they really built up this program and remember there was an album and the book as well that were advertised all over the place there i was. sat down to watch it thinking oh this is going to be fun and it's weird slightly i will a bit slightly creepy historical yes. stuff i wasn't mad on the whole highwayman thing as a kid because i remember things like in the opening title dick turpin he rode past a gallows that I'm convinced it was shadowy to the extent that you couldn't tell whether there was there wouldn't have been a body in it but to, <laughs> as a kid it felt like it he kind of looked up at it and winked mm. and laughed or something and rode off but there were things like that and there was the ghost of the highwayman and the Osborne book of ghosts and things like that I mm. didn't like the whole highwayman thing and there's this really boring song. I mean, it's actually quite a good song, I think, now. You know, and her being quite serious and costumey. It's like extra school you didn't ask for. And weird into the bargain. So it sounds like you stuck with it and got a bit freaked out. Yeah, the prosecution has a case when you say it was like school you didn't ask for. Because it was a, there's a distinct feeling of that about it. But what bit of a song about a cross-dressing highwayman woman who tests her lover's fidelity with a pistol point do you find boring Tim? it's <laughs> <laughs> quite a high expectation for entertainment but it's the first thing she sang on the show and i remember really liking it uh, for the benefit of people who <laughs> for anyone who isn't ours apparently we should point out the song of the story started with the song sove which is an old ballad and it's got variant versions but it's about a woman who dresses herself up as a highway man robs her true love and asks for the engagement ring and he won't give it to her and at the end she says if you'd given me the ring i would have shot you dead and then they're supposed to live happily ever after as a result of this psychotic behavior it throws rachel's letter from friends into perspective let's <laughs> put it that way but i remember there was a lot of stuff on there it was interesting and there was uh, you're right it was it was we're going to be talking a lot about this on this show which is the tail end of what we now call hauntology as a thing which is the early 80s when it's sort of it's the bit i've come to refer to in, in looking into this as the radio telescope end of hauntology because everything suddenly has a radio telescope on it a stone circle or a radio telescope and it's part of that thing of it's the last gasp in some ways of you'd never then after 1982 wasn't it have a children's show about folk music it would not fly i think but it was it was interesting i found it really interesting and i found it really it was creepy it was a bit like extra school guilty as charged but you learned about things like the industrial revolution i'm not <laughs> I'm not selling this, am I? You learned about... No, all right, you've got me. <laughs> I'll tell you what you did learn. You learned about the oral history of 
people who didn't really have a voice, I guess, would be the main takeaway from it. So you learned proletarian history from the songs of people who wrote those songs and voiced them and sang them. And that was great. That was all great. So there were songs about going from your village to work on machines in mill towns. I realise that it's not <laughs> it's not going to compete with the Xbox. OK, I get that. <laughs> I understand that this isn't for everyone, but at the time it was quirky enough to hold my interest. And I think I watched all of it. I think I was pleased enough with it to watch all of it. Yeah, it looks like there was a series in 1981, which they repeated about 18 million times within about <laughs> six months. I think it won like every award on the planet. Then there was a Christmas special. I don't Why know what happened in a... that. And the I second don't know series. But I think you're right about it being the tail end of all that, kind of the last gasp of it, because yeah. the series that took over from it, because this was really... Really, ironically, for something where, you know, all the settings are quite sparse, have really high production values, mm. all on film. It looked great. The series that replaced it was Treasure Houses with Mark Curry, where basically he went around old houses with his wacky red glasses on and bright shirts, making mm. jokes about things. That was only like 18 months later, but it's the shift in approach. Yes. It's kind of, there was a sense to which they kind of trusted, like they credited kids with a bit of intelligence. They might get this slightly spooky stuff mm. and after that it had to be more explained and it was a whole sea change throughout the 80s I think that television started to hold you by the hand a bit more if we're getting technical here the contract between the broadcaster and the viewer <laughs> had changed and I think it was no longer the thing where you go hey some kids might be interested in this it was almost like they weren't kids won't be interested in that and that was a shame, I think. So you stuff like the song and the story had to go. And eventually stuff where Mark Curry went around a stately home had to go. And it was replaced by rather more slick product. And it was product. Whereas this, you got the impression that Isla Sinclair would have made this anyway. Because she was very passionate <laughs> yeah. about it. It was just that time as well where you didn't know children's TV was a bit more of a grab bag than it is now. Where you'd get something like this it would get made and without wishing to say oh you know you wouldn't get that made now you wouldn't no one would see the value in it and i think that's a shame and i do remember tons of the songs from it i, I do and i remember them you know that's sort of colored my understanding of that period specifically that period as well of people moving out of you know it's happened early in this country that everyone moved away from villages and towns into cities to industrialize and a whole way of life was gone and it had it had lots of stuff about that and i found that really interesting and apparently steel ice spam were in some episodes of it which had i known that at the time and had i known <laughs> steel ice spam were and had i developed my later musical tastes i might have stuck with it but that's a lot of ifs really <laughs> i didn't know who steel ice spam were at the time I, I gotta be honest i barely do now i'm not <laughs> I'm not massively into British folk at the time. I think it was 1982. I, I wouldn't really have cared. It was just it was an interesting show. And it had, like I said, the, the, it was the dying embers of that sort of spookiness that had dominated the decade before. And you're very right that no one mentions it. I think it had quite a big impact on people, but no one really talks about it, which is a shame. Again, I think that's because it was the li almost literally the very end of all that. And I think there are two very solid reasons for that sea change in children's TV. Although it took a couple of years to come in. First mm. of all, ITV started to do the children's programmes properly, mm. and they had to compete with that. So yes. the song and the story was really quite done for with that. Also, I think it was things like mainly Grange Hill, which we might come back to later, but a couple of other things. <laughs> like breaking the sun and so on they may be gone for the time they were on a bit too far mm. and they had to rein in the weirder edges of children's TV and those two things combined meant that you didn't really get anything 
like that anymore. No, 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 no. I made a timeline of hauntology for the book, and it sort of starts, as many things do in the late 60s, with things like Sergeant Pepper. And, you know, I mean, there's really, really rough edges to this. It's not nice. But it sort of ends in the mid-80s with things like Robin of Sherwood, which are pop video production values for something that could have been made 10 years earlier, but is sort of very 80s in its own way. I absolutely loved Robin of Sherwood, but it is kind of the capstone of all of that. I think it's just like, there we go. That's it. We're done. And um, now, <laughs> now it's all nostalgia from this point. And what did they replace Robin the Sherwood with? A revival of the saint that nobody liked. So, yeah, <laughs> I think your point is proven. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very true. I don't even slightly remember that. That's something that entirely passed me by. Who was in it? Simon Dutton, whoever he is. That's the oh. only thing I've ever been aware of him being in. Uh, I don't know who Simon Dutton is. I'm just making a noise. Um, <laughs> I don't. If you bought a Zegazoid chew bar and you remember who Simon Dutton is then please write in <laughs> don't try to ask somebody for it at gunpoint and if they give it to you they get shocked <laughs> <laughs> yes that would be oh god that would be that's more intertextuality than we demanded <laughs> I think okay well we're still in kind of that hauntological educational children's TV world for your next choice which is a serial from a school's program that I don't remember as well as some of the others from this slot but we'll come back to that in a minute anyway here's a the theme music from it which is kind of weird enough in itself Roger Lim of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop with the theme from The King's Dragon, which is a 1977 serial for Look and Read. Will, what was going on here? This was part of Look and Read, as you say. Look and Read is remembered very clearly. It's not a thing people have forgotten. People remember Wordy, the floating pedantic bastard. Who, what was um, Wordy? I still, people are trying to explain to me what he's meant to be, and I still don't understand. I, I don't know. Is he? I thought he was the head of a, you know, those round heads of an old electric typewriter. I don't I no. never saw one of them at the time, so... No, I didn't. They wouldn't have registered with me as a thing. You know? <laughs> it's like he's, he's a piece of obscure typological equipment. <laughs> but Wordy was a kind of floating thing. It was way more annoying than Zippy or anything comparable. And he used to threaten the nation's children to read. That I don't remember as well as The King's Dragon, which was a strand that they had. Uh, they had a serial every series to help teach kids to read. And The King's Dragon was one of them. And it was weird. And it was weird in... I, I watched it again. It wasn't as weird as I remember it being, but I think it was always on. If I was off school and sick, so I had a fever or something, and it was always on. And I'd never see it in the right order because it had about a million parts and it had that weird fever dream feel to it because it's written with teaching comprehension in mind so people don't talk in a kind of 
naturalistic way. And it's got lots of just eerie images in it. I think the first scene of it is a newspaper drifting out of a window, and it's really beautiful shot. Anyway, it's all set in Hastings, where a young boy called Billy, I think it's Billy, and his friend Anne, who is <laughs> who is a 35-year-old woman who works for a local newspaper, don't know how they met. He gets wind of a mystery about the king's dragon. The newspaper has bits cut out of it, and they work out the message cut out of the paper spells the words, we know you have the king's dragon, which I think is such a spooky phrase. It's brilliant. And then when you know what it is, it, you know, it's, it's not as interesting <laughs> but it comes back to like that thing of never seeing the end i never saw the end of it so it's just one of those things it, was, it seemed to always be on and it, it hit so many of those spooky markers because it was a mystery that no one was solving it was delivered in this stilted way i almost always saw it when i had a fever <laughs> and also it, had, it was full of phrases like we know you have the king's dragon you know which is one of those weird if you just want to scroll that on a wall you'd never forget it i think it was one of those things where it's stripped of context so I didn't really know where it began or ended. And it, to me, sums up, again, that Roger Lim radio telescope end of ontology when, you know, the Anglo-Saxon warrior is communicating through the computer or whatever. It's all of that era, to me, is, is encapsulated in that. Well, there were lots of radio telescopes in Look and Read, as I'll come back to in a second. But again, we never watched it in school. I only saw bits of them when I was off school for whatever reason. And they were really, there was a whole long run of really, in different ways, quite creepy stories. There was Lennon the River Mob, which I don't actually remember, which is kind no. of like Dockland organised crime thing which you know when that was on that was seemed really grimy and creepy yes. Joe and the Sheep Rustlers which has got that weird rural edge to it The Boy from Space which I think is the one most people remember about yeah. a trapped alien and a thin man trying to catch him Cloudburst which is a really really weird one about scientists who invent uh, you see loads of radio telescopes in this and in the boys from space but he invents a machine that can create rain with the idea that you know it's going to make the deserts bloom and end famine and people want to steal it from him but the one that really creeped me out as a kid because again I only saw odd random bits of it was Sky Hunter with Jeffrey Bailden as a really really sinister rare bird eggs collector which you know bothered me from the outset because I didn't understand that as a thing I thought mm. what is that why would someone be doing it the kids were forever that were investigating were forever getting locked up in rooms and so on it <laughs> felt like a public information film and then years later i realized that the girl in it jane topman is the girl who screams jimmy in that frisbee substation public no. information film it's her really yeah. and also some of the cartoons look at me were done by richard taylor who did charlie says so it had that whole weird ambience to it but i found sky hunter really really weird I mean, the creepiness of Jeffrey Belden is a well-known fact. This is, uh, for people who don't know, this is the Crow Man from Wurzel Comage. But it, they were all, I felt, in what way is this? Well, there's two things here. One is they all seem to be aimed not at children. I don't know who, who they were aimed at particularly, but the rambling storylines and the slightly inappropriate subject matter always made them It feel like you were watching something you shouldn't, really. And the other thing is, in what way was this going to help teach kids to read? <laughs> well, they're going to end up with the words radio telescope. Obviously, that's a gift. Uh, they're going to end up with we know you have the king's dragon there were other notes as well there was you are running out of time there was just a series of threatening notes in that show the other thing as you say about it not only was the subject matter inappropriate but it was also full of things that you would not see now on kids tv there's a main character who smokes really heavily in the king's dragon who's the villain and they also explore a derelict house which i really don't think kids tv would allow at any point since it looks 
dangerous. They haven't filmed it in a set, they filmed it in a properly unpleasant damp riddled derelict house but even watching it again because it's all on youtube if anyone feels brave um it still doesn't make any sense to me and still it rang a lot of bells and i remember a lot of images from it like the newspaper and the derelict house i think i remember but it's so dreamlike even without being ill and being eight years old it just felt very woozy and strange well again looping back to you know what we're saying about the song and the story they didn't object to just doing weird things and children's tv around then i mean mm. do you remember i've barely ever met any Anyone remembers the 1978 BBC Pinocchio, produced by Barry Letts, the former Doctor Who producer, was really, really sinister. And it was like a, I say, a real puppet. You know, it was a, it was an mm. actual like splintery wooden board, sort of <laughs> CSO'd in with these human actors being very pantomime villain type, with like sketched backgrounds and so on. That was, I actually, I'm told by my family that I refused to watch it after a certain point because it was too shrieky and there were always like threats yeah. to burn him and so on and they they didn't mind doing that for children because they thought children could tolerate it I'm not sure they actually could in the same way they could tolerate scary things meant for older children or for adults because there's a world in there that makes more sense yeah it's the fact that anything can happen or it's that as well that you're as a kid your transference of your identity will always be to the hero so you are Pinocchio when you're watching it you're the one who's going to be burned alive (laughs) it's that it's that fear of, of that you identify with someone on screen and it's sickening to think of what's going to happen to them. Do you remember Bernie Clifton singing a song about Daddy Longlegs? I don't, but I can kind of see it in my mind. <laughs> there was talking about things that, that were just inappropriate and weird and wrong. There was a song about a Daddy Longlegs that Bernie Clifton sang. I'm fairly sure it was, and he sang it. It was a sad song about a Daddy Longlegs that danced in front of a light and it, its image was projected on a wall and it, someone swats it at the end and it dies. <laughs> and it, the last line, it says, what do I care? I'm the only daddy long legs to have danced with Fred Astaire. It was horrible. The whole thing was horrible. It's like, yeah, I just remember that same thing. of like, why would you put this on the screen? Why would you make this? And it had a really creepy animation to go with it. And also, would kids have known who Fred Astaire was? No, I didn't. I had no idea. I remember watching it. And thinking, also, a crane fly wouldn't know Fred Astaire. I mean, let's be honest. You know? He's a crane fly. He's not going to, you know, he doesn't know anyone is. So, yes, but again, like the Pinocchio thing, it's one of those things where, as a kid, you watch it and go, I, I, that disturbs me in a way that I can't really identify, but I don't like it. Do you know, by the way, who wrote that Run of Luck and Read serials? I did, because I looked it up today. It was Richard Carpenter. It was, yeah. A yes. Writer of, obviously, Robin the Sherwood, Cat Weasel, Ghost of Motley Hall, and also Sean Flanagan, who was Matt in The Ghost of Motley Hall, is Billy in The King's Dragon. And, of course, he wrote Dick Turpin, which you mentioned earlier. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's all circling back round to Richard Cheers, Carpenter, isn't it? Isn't it's it? Gets, yeah, this is like some, <laughs> some very poor quality conspiracy theory. It also had that synthesizer music, which then began to dominate from about 1978 onwards, which is another feature of that very late creepy telly era that everything shifts to synthesizer. So instead of a, an orchestral score, you'll have, and it would always be Roger Lim, wouldn't it? <laughs> it, would, it would be you just get Roger Lim to do a synthesizer thing. I mean, just the whole thing is at once thunderingly 1970 whenever it was made but it also feels oddly timeless it feels like it's still going on somewhere watching it again was strange because I, obviously I work from home now <laughs> like everyone else and it just I watched it this morning and I just felt oh god I'm, I'm it's like I'm back at home 
you know, I've got measles or something and I'm just on the sofa. It wasn't a pleasant feeling. To be fair, the bits with Wordy do go on forever. I think the links are still going on now. <laughs> yeah, I really disliked Wordy as a kid. I, I, I dislike him now still and <laughs> just that hasn't abated. He's just, he, what is he for? He's not going to teach kids to read because he's awful. It's like, he's just a horrible person. And nobody really talks about Wordy. He's not well remembered, which is weird. He's not the same pedestal as Charlie from Words and Pictures. It was more or less his contemporary. Yeah, Charlie looked like he'd just been drinking a lot. <laughs> he looked like a he looked like a drunk. You know, it's the bow tie as well, the sort of you know, melty face. Yeah, Wordy looked like he would get a guitar out and sing and he'd clap his hands to wake you up. He was that sort of person. And he used to say word watchers as well. And I thought I didn't sanction that. I didn't agree to you calling me <laughs> that. I'm not part of your gang. It was quite a relief when the King's Dragon came on. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm sure Wordy, although he wanted everyone to go off and read, he would not have approved of your next choice. There's no clip I can really use for this, so here's the theme music from a TV series that's kind of in the similar mould to it-ish. Journey to the Unknown, the late 60s Hammer anthology series for ITV, because that's the closest thing I could think of to the fourth pan book of horror stories. Will, do you have to open this? I do. I do very much have to open it. And I, I didn't own a copy of this. But this is what interests me about it, is that my sister came home one day and she more or less memorised it, like one of the old men in Fahrenheit 451 who's remembered the Bible. She'd remembered the whole of the story, Little Girl Eater by Septimus Dale. It's now enjoying a comeback, this particular story, because it started to be included in lots of horror anthologies, obviously, and the pan books of horror themselves have become quite desirable items to own. So there is more interest in this. But the story itself, when my sister told it to me, I remember it being perfect. I remember it being a perfect, scary story. And I, I still think it is. I think it's. A, I don't really want to deprive anyone the pleasure of reading this story, but it has such a bleak ending. And obviously, Septimus Dale is a pseudonym. I did find out this morning who it was for, but it wasn't anyone I'd heard of. But a lot of people think it was Roald Dahl. It wasn't Roald Dahl, just because of the well-executed and the brutal nature of the story. It's just to hark back to that thing where somebody read a story like that at school, went, ooh, my brother's got to hear this, and then memorised the whole thing. I don't think that was particularly unusual then, or that you'd remember enough of the salient points that you'd be able to embroider. Has that skill gone now? I'm going to guess it has, because that's a kind of weird, less scary adjunct to this. I find that when I rewatch things that I've not seen, you know, in God knows how many years, like when I saw the BBC Pinocchio again, Mm. I can remember bits of them instantly and yet I think it's because you had much less to take in in those days there was less stuff mm. less things got into consciousness and I can find that say if I rewatch Community yes. or something like that I'll think 
I don't remember this episode at all, mm. and I've seen it twice already. I think it's kind of that. There's just so much stuff now. There's less impetus to take something in 100% because mm. things don't stand out as much. I quite like that thing of somebody having to remember it and then do a sort of oral history version of it. It's quite <laughs> exciting. That also belongs squarely to the late 70s, early 80s, when some people had video recorders and some people didn't. So some people had seen, say, Poltergeist, and the job of those people was then to go into school and explain to everyone else the entirety of Poltergeist. <laughs> and this was a real thing. It was like, because we didn't have a video recorder, for, you know, ever. And that, so people would, you know, you'd, you'd rely on people to tell you, like a town crier, to tell you about, you know, or the tales of the evil dead or the extra, or as we've discussed, extra, you know. It's those things. You rely on someone's memory of it. And that whole era has absolutely gone. And the video recorder was the first nail in the coffin of that. But the internet has absolutely done that for books as well. So for years, I thought that story was called The Child Eater. So I couldn't find it anywhere. And eventually, somebody shared a list of obscure horror stories on uh, an Australian website, I think. And it was on there. And I almost jumped when I saw it. It's like, oh, it's a little girl eater. That's what it's called. It was notable at the time, apparently. And it was well regarded at the time. And it just sort of faded. For the benefit of anyone, I can explain the setup, which is a little girl called Miranda goes to the beach with her mum and her mum's creepy boyfriend, Johnny, who just wants to shag her mum, basically. And so Miranda is sent off to explore the beach and she finds under a pier a man buried under a girder and that's kind of as much as I can give you without spoiling it. Part of the problem with, I better say a bit more about the Pan Book of Horror series, because mm. they are, some of them go for a fortune now. They do, I think yeah. they're about 30 volumes from 1959 to 1989, and it isn't a recent thing they've become collectible, because I'm sure you remember this. You remember Chapter 1 books in Liverpool, don't you? I do, I do. Yes. Yeah. My main memory, of you know they had that big bookshelf where they put all the genre books, all the, yeah. uh, the Man from Uncle novels and all the Dune ones and so on. The guy, I think he was the proprietor, the one that looked like Bill Oddie, <laughs> shuffle over with some pan books of horror, and almost before the book had made contact with the shelf, <laughs> there'd be those sort of blokes you get where they looked like they were dressed like their interpretation of the doctor. You know, they're walking down the street and someone at the BBC said, Hey, you're just what we're looking for. You know, with their ridiculous frock mm. coat and their funny hat that wasn't quite like the doctor's hat and so on. Mm. They just fly over and grab them and run straight to the counter. And the money yeah. hadn't landed in his hand before they were out of the door they were that popular even then they're quite hard to get hold of i've got about six or seven i think of them and they've all come to me accidentally i've always found them in car boot sales and things like that but things where people just don't really value them. it's not in chapter one books in liverpool certainly and they've become obviously we'll return to this in a minute with another choice but they've become sort of fetishized as objects and that's quite rightly i think that's quite a good thing because a lot of them are very good some of the stories in them are phenomenal and for Gotten. I bought the reprint of the very first one, the Herbert Van Thal edited very yeah, first. I always thought that was a pseudonym, but apparently it was his real no, name. No, real name. Yeah, exactly. I really sound like a vampire. There's a story in that first one called Raspberry Jam, which is absolutely stunning and horrible, and is all the more horrible because it's just set in our world. It's not about vampires or anything. It's, it's just in our world, and it's brilliant. I wouldn't have appreciated that story as a kid, though. I wouldn't have appreciated what's good about that, whereas The Little Girl Eater, I think, is just a a perfect horror story it's just really precise and it doesn't waste time 
just remembering about the little girl eater, which came to me accidentally, as I said, it made me think that there's a lot of unmined stuff from that era that's in print. I was at Lickling Hall in Norfolk in 2015 and misfiled in one of the fiction sections. I found four books by a man called David Hutchinson, who at the time was 18. And between the ages of 18 and 20, he wrote these four books of short stories. And they're all brilliant. He's still writing. I didn't, I thought he'd just vanished, but he's writing political thrillers now. But he wrote these four volumes of stories that are called things like Thumbprints and Fool's Gold. And they're absolutely, again, on the nail, that tail end of hauntology. They're all, you know, ghosts and computers. And But he writes brilliantly. He's, I don't understand why he hasn't been more well-regarded than the better-known peers, I think. He's, he's just really good. To write their stories at 19, 20, 21, I mean, they're just staggeringly good. Obviously, because, like, you know, I'm obviously massively into books, and sort of, you know, but those highways and byways of things, I really like. You often find brilliant stuff there that's been overlooked. The David Hutchinson being a case in point, I don't think anyone talks about it. those first four volumes, and they're really, honestly, if you can track them down, they're great. They're really good. I'm going to stop plugging in now, but yeah. So do you have the fourth pun book of horror stories? And if so, which cover is yours? <laughs> I read about this today. I do not have the fourth pan book. Of, I've got a bunch of others, as I say, but I don't have that one, which is a shame because I would really like to not have to download some pirate software in order to read The Little Girl Eater again. Well, I have an issue with both covers for this because some of the other titles in the series... I don't even want to own because the covers are so Mm. unpleasant, so disturbing. But this one, the more popular edition, has a doll with a tarantula crawling on it, which is not that scary when you think about it. No, it's not really. The the previous one has some hoods with eyes glowing out of them. That's more scary, I think. (laughs) It's uh, not very scary. A tarantula on a doll is not really. (laughs) Tarantula on a doll is not my problem. It's someone else's situation they've got into. It doesn't really bother me. It's not going to impinge on my life. Yeah, I do like the cover art of them. So I, I don't know. I can see why people collect them. I mean, I, you know, I'm saying that as if that's something that other people do, whereas I've got, like I say, six or seven of them. And they were, they were one of the things that were, they were ubiquitous for a while, and now they're not nowhere to be found. Well, before we move on, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of the other titles in the fourth book. There's <laughs> The Importance of Remaining Earnest by M.S. Waddell, which has got to be a comedy one, I'm guessing. Yeah. The Ohio Love Sculpture by Adobe James who I'm sure it's available as a PDF now. <laughs> but that, that sounds a bit up to date. That sounds a bit hippie. But this, The Elephant Man by Sir Frederick Trevis. Now, now that is will that be. the original story? Or is he somebody who's just like, ah, there's something I can take the story of and copy it, but with a different name so no one will notice? It'll be a very earnest essay at the end going, we've sampled some horrors from people's imaginations. But did you know that there was a very sweet man who, and it'll be that, it'll be that for three pages. It'll then have that sort of moralising. You thought he was a monster, but you're you're wrong. You're wrong. This man you've only just heard of, and your only source of information comes from me, is not what you thought. You know, and it would just be that. So... Uh, yes, I can more or less guarantee it'll be that. And there's also the Haunted Telephone by Elliot O'Donnell, which doesn't really sound that frightening. <laughs> Elliot O'Donnell was a prolific ghost hunter who claimed to have seen over, I think, 60 ghosts. And he wrote these anthology books where he talked about his encounters. And they go for a fortune now as well. He just saw so many ghosts in his life. There was nowhere he went where he didn't see ghosts. So his books are all... And he wrote literally Haunted Churches is one of his. I think I have that one. Haunted London, which goes for a fortune. And he also answered the phone once, apparently. Yes, he did. Hello, is, is that Elliot the... This is a ghost. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it would be surprising if it wasn't a ghost for Elliot O'Donnell, frankly. 
technically. But he wrote dozens and dozens of books. Again, that incredible thing of being really prolific. Okay, well, we're staying in more or less exactly the same part of the bookshelf for your next choice. Again, nothing could really use the clip, so something that was very much part of the same phenomenon. Great news, horror bag lovers! <laughs> My latest spine chilling invention! <laughs> I'm calling the bats after my fiendish friends here. Say hello, fellas. It's the fattiest snack you'll ever see with a frighteningly flighty flavor. Ah! <laughs> and they said I'd never get it off the ground. New bats in horror bags. Snacks that go crunch in the night. Okay, that was not bad for Smith's horror bags, which were basically horror-themed crisps. It's the only thing you could put in to represent the Weekend Book of Ghosts and Horror, which is simultaneously the best and the worst title ever. Will, do the contents live up to that? The Weekend Book of Ghosts and Horror was, again, this is one of these things that's become weirdly desirable. I had book two as a kid, I think, which had a faceless ghost on the front. That now goes for like 78 quid, so I don't have that one. But I did recently, I was in Bungay in Suffolk, and I was in a bookshop there that was brilliant, and I asked, have you got anything about ghosts? And they, they said, oh, you might find something over there. And I found the weekend book of ghosts and horror from, I think it's 1980, this one. It is so entertaining. Like I said, I can't have the other one that I had as a kid, which is quite nice, because it remains a sort of folk memory of these things. But it is written in a very lurid style, and it's so undiscriminating. There's a thing about Tutankhamun, there's a thing about Alistair Crowley, just because... <laughs> why not there's a thing about and then because it's ghosts and horror that's quite a broad category and also it's quite a delineation as well <laughs> ghosts <laughs> and horror and horror I'll just read some of the titles out of the chapters because they are absolutely phenomenal I died 2000 years ago the man who kept on killing she lives in two centuries attacked by starving rats the mind trippers bingo for a full house of ghosts which is perfect my baby drank poison stuck in a lift for 15 days <laughs> it's, it's sort of a like radiohead b-side really um and there, there are i think it says over 30 but there's 34 they're all really undiscriminating there's one about a ufo landing that i looked up and it's complete nonsense it was a hoax it was a famous hoax so that's in there it's so undiscriminating in its content and the writing is so gloriously shocking in both senses of the word ordeal of terror with two axe men here we go this is uh this is marvelous this is by marjorie wagner it's a real life account of her being confronted by two axe men in her own home uh, which shouldn't be anywhere amusing I felt uneasy that chill January morning when I left my lonely bungalow at Weston in Nottinghamshire to feed the chickens. You know the strange feeling that someone is watching you. At the back of my mind was the niggling fear that two dangerous men on the run from nearby Rampton Hospital might be around. I looked across at two caravans parked in my garden and my heart missed a beat. The windows of one were steamed up as though the gas fire was alight inside, but both caravans should have been empty. I picked up an iron bar and went to investigate. It's just all marvellous. That thing again is like horror being in short supply, so you Get, Weekend was a women's magazine, I believe. It was a magazine that my only exposure to it was the dentist's waiting room or the doctor's waiting room because there'd be a stack of them and the people's friend. They were very into these kind of weird books that <laughs> they'd give away free. They lasted till about the mid 80s, and it's just a, those were the only way you'd get a hold of those stories. And some of those stories from the first one really stuck with me. There was a story in there about Gloomy Sunday. Oh, the song. Yeah. The suicide song. And that's the first time I ever heard of it was in one of those books. And it's a fascinating fascinating story and it's mostly untrue but it, it's a brilliant introduction to stuff like that it's that thing of like the indiscriminate grab bag of stuff but it's also when you're 10 years old it's the best thing ever well i was trying to find out and i've 
drawn a blank on this exactly what its relation to the magazine was i mean i'm assuming there must have been a column or a regular page or something because when you think about it some of the things that are in it aren't that far from what you'd see in terms of subject or story in take a break now yeah. it's just that they yeah. write it in a more jovial style with mm. you know whimsical pictures for some reason but yes i think there must have been something in the magazine that involved the guy who edited these who was richard whittington egan who apparently yes. was a leading ripperologist he writes a great deal of the content in here i, I know nothing about him there is a foreword it says all are the results of intensive research and our authentic accounts of experiences of the weird horrific and inexplicable and that's all you need really but the cover is worth mentioning as well it's got a, a woman screaming on the front. it's really graphic it's got a woman screaming but half of her face has rotted off and there's just a skull and it's been executed with such gusto that i have to hide it from my four-year-old daughter because it is genuinely unple- an unpleasant image well again that sort of thing you know covers like that used to be a regular sight on it was always either i associate it with when you went to look for your dad in the library you had to <laughs> into the adult section walk yes. past the supernatural and ufos bit whatever you see covers like that all that carousel that used to get in the news agents yeah really cheap paperbacks on it they all suddenly disappeared i think that was really down to you know the covers of early rental videos just pushed that sort of artwork too far i think and there was right. legislation to stop them and i think book publishers panicked because of that because i would compare this to something i had which sadly i don't have anymore from just a year or two after the weekend book of ghosts and horror was around was do you remember on the wide awake club early on there was a section called ghosts monsters and legends where they would talk about you know real life supernatural story and try and discuss why it might not be true i do remember this watch out for i had the book of that with the three of them on the cover in kind of like ghost <laughs> hunter mode and it told all these stories and then you know it said timmy says this is all a load of cunts wallop wide awakers you know and, and it, you know it's the same sort of content but mm. given a different spin a very different spin a couple of years later and it's like we have stumbled on there's this weird tipping point where all this kind of becomes nobody says it's unacceptable it just becomes it by default yes it's suddenly you can't talk about devil worship anymore in front of the kids and uh, <laughs> it's but I, that strand on the because the wide white club was preceded by data run is that correct it was yes and summer run nobody remembers which had junior doing a rewritten version of mama used to say it's the thing <laughs> ooh summer run ah summer run on data run they had a strand called the file of the fantastic which was also, you know yes. it was like anything that, that you do for kids has got to have something about the paranormal in it it's really weird you know and i I liked all that stuff, so that was great. I think it was the only bit I really remember of Data Run. But it's that thing, again, of, of pre-the internet, pre-Reddit. Whereas now, this stuff is literally, you know, there's a cottage industry in making this kind of thing. You know, but at the time, it was rare enough to be sought out, but it was common enough that it would be in pretty much every bookshop or newsagent, as you say. And it was the way that, I mean, even as a grown-up now, I like stories of the paranormal. The 14 Times of this brilliant mag book series called uh, It Happened to Me, which is from their letters page, which is just people's paranormal experiences. And they were brilliant, and I loved it. I love that they briefly revived that format of having a book from a magazine that's just full of, you know, spooky stuff. And that was the best modern iteration of that I can think of. But the stories are still, if your job is to kind of find stories or look for stories, or the mecha- I, I just love them. I still do. And the Book of Ghosts and Horror is just the beginning of that for me in my life. I remember 
being freaked out by everything in it. <laughs> Plus as well, because like I say, it was such a grab bag. There's a thing in here about John George Haig, the acid bath murderer, who was a real person who committed a series of really horrific murders. And then there's just some, you know, story about Mary Queen of Scots or whatever. It's like, it's, there's no guarantee of what you're going to get next. And the fact that they were sort of penny dreadfuls is like modern versions of that is brilliant. I was very taken with those as a kid. Okay, well, we're coming on to your last choice, and people may have noticed there has been a kind of incremental upward sliding scale of spookiness to all of this. So, your last choice, apparently, according to you, is the scariest thing there has ever been. Again, no real clip could use for this, but here's some voices from the end of a record that you might find a bit familiar. You are sleeping. You do not want to believe. You are sleeping. Okay, that was the weird, weird, weird recorded stuff that went between Rubber Ring and the Sleep by the Smiths, as anyone who had the 12-inch of the boy with the thorn in the side will know. I've put that here to represent, although it came from a different book, I think, Photographs of the Unknown. Will, what were these? Photographs of the Unknown is a book that was released in 1980, and it is the first time, I think, a lot of spooky pictures have been collated together. And it was an open goal, really. It was, it was waiting to happen. It's curated by... By Robert Rickard and Richard Kelly. It's one of those things where it's it's so part of the furniture of my mind that I can probably recall it anyway. In the novel I've just written, the two main characters fake a ghost photograph, but they also list their favourite ghost photographs. And the book is set in the early 70s, so they wouldn't have had access to this, but they would have seen those pictures in magazines and stuff. So Because they were circulated in magazines and papers and stuff, but no one had thought to put them all together into one volume. And so this thing was an unlikely publishing hit, I believe. But my my first exposure to it again to harken back to that theme of cottage industry horror someone brought it into primary school and it was so terrifying to see this thing like literally every and i couldn't stop looking at it as well it was passed around under the desks at school and it was just like every image had some separate nightmare in there <laughs> and it was just it was mind-blowing also as well because you're a kid you've got no filter you don't know that you know people could have staged these they could be fake you've got nothing like that I'm sure the guys who do Scarred for Life, because uh, they're working on an 80s volume, aren't they? I'm sure that they'll cover this, because it was such a key moment of nightmare for people my age, I think, certainly. Like I say, it was the first time you... All of a sudden, you had these pictures together, like the ghost monk and newbie, which is in there. Which is, and just the whole Arthur C. Clarke grab bag again of UFOs, people mutilating themselves, photographs of the Loch Ness Monster. All of a sudden, it, it all seemed really real, because someone brought in a book that had photographs of it. Looking at it again, the photographs are quite badly reproduced <laughs> which sort of added to it really there's a two-page shot of the carcass of a basking shark which we now know is is a thing that happens if people mistake them for plesiosaurs because they rot in a certain way just that over two pages i remember it just just giving me sleepless nights it was so unpleasant like what you'd have a book full of these things that nobody wanted to see and yet i couldn't stop looking at it it was amazing to see a copy of it as a grown-up and sort of have no very little reaction to it apart from nostalgia it's not one of the things that's forgotten but i think the impact of it being passed around schools and things like that it's it's one thing to say that it existed but it's not it was a forbidden book 
it was a thing that you couldn't look at. We had to pass it around lest it got confiscated or we couldn't show the teachers what we were looking at. It was just that thing of it being so, so antisocial, I guess. In the way that, like, why would anyone make this book? This book of horrors. <laughs> and I remember very distinctly that feeling of transgression of reading it. And there was also, it's very much emblematic of that thing that I think has gone now, where certainly it was true when we were young, but the idea that things like a book or like a well like a video nasty or something or like the bbc pinocchio could get you beyond what they were yes yeah they didn't end where they physically ended or you know ended in terms of broadcast or something they were there permanently hiding behind a door frame <laughs> waiting well, to, i don't know how the photographs could have got you but you know what i mean it's like there's some malevolence in them that could affect you beyond the page there's, this ends up in the book there's, i say almost exactly that in the novel it's like these things might have the power to sort of seep off the page my mum used to call it poisoning your mind which I, I've never come up with a better phrase than that one it was like it's the ghost monk of Newby which is a big feature of the book and you will know the picture and it's truncated near the picture it's not a very good reproduction of it. it's, it's god, my god it's enough it's like a sort of very tall phantom on an altar and it's got a sheet for a face it's wearing a black robe and it has a sheet for a face and it's got two sort of very rough holes for eyes I just almost lost my mind the first time I saw that. <laughs> it was just so, so terrifying and horrible. And the fact that it was on a photograph, which kind of meant it was real. It was just, it's too strong a draft. I mean, it's like, it was just awful. It was awful. And I loved it as a kid. I loved it and feared it in equal measure. As an adult, you learn to enjoy these things. Well, I, I really like the video for Come to Daddy by the Aphex Twin, where the weird monster comes out of the TV and just bellows in an old lady's face. And there's something brilliantly antisocial about that. It's so kind of like, that's just awful. We're making an awful thing. Let's all enjoy the awful thing. And this was, someone else had made an awful thing, but nobody could possibly enjoy it. <laughs> it was it was just to unsettle and to freak you out. And it had no like it was never able to assimilate it it was always an objective also the fact i didn't own it as well so i'd glimpse it and then i'd go home and obsess about it <laughs> and then not be able to tell anyone because it was also forbidden that i'd seen it it was just you know it's that whole experience i would hope that kids still had that in some form i mean i guess through things like slender man indicate that it's still a force the line between fact and fiction become blurred and people can scare themselves you know and it's, i think it's all still there but it's just in a different way i mean i like to think it would be well it didn't quite work for everyone because i did notice there's one star review of photographs of the unknown on amazon from someone who said they were sad to find that most of the photos have been explained oh man that is that's gutting isn't it <laughs> that is, that's gutting to find out that all of these photographs of things that aren't that real. only most some of them could still be real <laughs> Do you you will remember this? Do you remember the PG Tips trading cards of the unexplained? Oh yes, Kevin Tips's book of the unexplained. Yes, yes yeah. absolutely. And loads of those have now been debunked or solved. I remember the racetrack rocks was a big thing when we were kids. The rocks that used to slide around Death Valley. Nobody ever saw them move. But that, and apparently that's just nonsense. <laughs> that's just apparently some quite boring phenomenon to do with ice or something. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter that they've been explained or debunked. It just is the power of those images. Okay, well, just before we go, there's something I wanted to bring up, which nobody I've ever mentioned to seems to remember this. So when I mentioned it to you earlier, you replied in capitals saying, I have no knowledge of this. 
so, I can't wait to find out your reaction to when I describe it. This is the Grange Hill walled up ghost storyline. I'm just going to repeat myself. I have no knowledge of this whatsoever. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, well, I think it was from 1986. I think it was the latter half of 1986. So after Zamo's big drug storyline, it was when Grange Hill was starting to kind of lose its initial edges. They mm. were really taming it quite a lot around then. It was when the Melda Davis came in. It went a bit more just comical. It lost the hard-hitting storylines. And it was the era of Trevor Cleaver, who was... Th- I mean, this shows how Grange Hill was changing. He was the bully who basically... All he did was... His modus operandi was he said, I am menacing me. And people said, uh-oh, he's trouble. We'd better avoid him. And that was right. all that happened with Trevor Cleaver. Okay. And it was the era of Gonch, the, you know, the white boy moneymaker yeah. and his gang. And I think Trevor Cleaver tried to muscle in on one of Gonch's operations, you know, like selling toast or whatever it was. I can't remember. <laughs> and... Trevor Cleaver started to hear this rumour about a schoolboy that had been bricked up by a teacher at Grange Hill, which, when you think about Grange Hill had actually moved to a new purpose of school a couple of years before that, so he should have sussed it out from that bit, but it kind of went round the story saying, oh, only the hardest kid in the school to be able to go and see where that happened. And he went down into the cellar, and this wall started glowing, and bricks flew out of it, and a hand reached out, went towards him, and he ran off screaming. And suddenly, Ziggy and Robbie and Gonch and all them just popped up from nowhere from behind things, started laughing. And from behind the wall, holding a green torch, Hollow Holloway said, Are you going to let me out? So wow. they bricked up Hollow with a green torch. Where did he get a green torch from? Well, exactly. To, to play his hauntological prank on Trevor Cleaver. And they bricked him up in a wall. That's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's... That, I don't remember that. I think I'd checked out by that point. I'd, um, I don't blame I, you. I, I honestly, because of things like that, I'd left. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's uh, that sounds spectacularly lame. I don't I, honestly. That's I mean, yeah. only a couple of years before that, Grain Chill would have had an actual ghost in it. Yeah, they, and it would have been unpleasant. It. They would have. Yeah. <laughs> at, at the time, it would have been a ghost in a BBC micro. I think it would have been something that was you know, that was communicating <laughs> via the keyboard. Um, but. No, I've, I've never heard of that before in my life. That's, uh, God, it sounds all, I, you made me remember Trevor Cleaver now, so I hate you. So, uh, <laughs> is the thing I do remember about that. Um, well, yeah. you know, Phil Redmond is a dramatic genius. Will, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Now, that's all we've time for this week, I'm afraid. Actually, in one of the games, I was supposed to be showing you a perpetual motion machine, but as Larry said, it's rude to stick my tongue out. So, see you all again next week, folks. Bye! <laughs>
101 by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1, from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details, timworthington.org.